Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 377 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down the latest, greatest, and I guess worst in many cases, from AEW and NXT, another absolutely loaded edition of Getting Over in another absolutely loaded week in the world of professional wrestling. And we, of course, are here to bring it all to you. Now, it would not be an edition of Getting Over, you know how this goes, if I did not start the show by reminding you that this podcast is so head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave us a five-star written review to let everyone know why you love listening to the show and telling them why they should subscribe. As I said earlier this week, we have 377 reviews on Apple Podcasts. If that number gets to 400 before the end of 2022, and again, I know how many of you listen to the show every week. So there is a huge gap between the number who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts and the number of reviews that we actually have. If we can get to 400 before the end of 2022, I will stop mentioning this twice every episode and move it down to once. Also, a little extra incentive. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live here on the show. So please go ahead and do that. I also want to shout out all of our Spotify listeners, everyone who has tweeted us, all of the minutes that you've listened to the show this year, where we rank among your Spotify top five at the end of the year. We'll try to put all those together and come up with maybe a top five Spotify listeners or something like that. But I will tell you, you guys are going to have a, uh, a long way to go to beat one particular listener who it seems somehow, despite us not taping this many minutes of getting over this year, has listened to 42,000 minutes of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast this year, which means listening and re-listening to episodes multiple times. Folks, I don't know how it's possible, but it's real. Um, We'll have to talk about that more at a later date, but please leave those five-star ratings and reviews. We appreciate you so much. We would also appreciate if you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, episode drops, news, analysis, fun stuff all week long. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. One last thing before we get into today's show, just want to remind you about the episodes that we have already taped. It was supposed to be a three-episode week. Well, guess what? It's a four-episode week. Not only do we have our WWE Survivor Series War Games instant analysis from first thing Sunday morning as soon as that show went off the air, we also have our weekly WWE episode published on Tuesday talking about everything that happened on SmackDown and all of the Survivor Series War Games fallout from Monday Night Raw. And then we went ahead and dropped a surprise bonus episode for you on Wednesday, my one-on-one conversation with one half of the WWE Women's Tag Team Champions, Dakota Kai. You know, I'll do a little Barry Horowitz. I thought it was awesome. It's getting rave reviews, a lot of coverage. If you have not listened to that interview, I highly suggest you go back and do that. But that's all the WWE main roster stuff for the week. This show is not about that. This is about NXT and AEW. And I'll tell you folks, really disappointed this week in both shows. If you remember one week ago in this exact same space, I told you I was thrilled that NXT and AEW Dynamite in particular put on two of their maybe best episodes of the year, but the best 
episodes that we've gotten from them in the same week. And you know what? Rampage last week also wasn't that bad either. So I was really enthusiastic going into that show. Let me just say, I do not feel the same way this week. Uh, NXT, I thought, was a slog. AEW Dynamite, they tried to do a lot of things. They were successful in certain areas. Others, I was not particularly fond of what we got. And Rampage was back to basically being its normal worthless show. So look, there's a lot to break down on today's episode. We're gonna get to all of it right now. The Silver King has had a hell of a day and a hell of a week, not just with this podcast, but a lot of other things going on in my work life, my personal life, everything's fine. But let's just say to do four podcast episodes in a week, this was not the right week uh, to go ahead and do the extra podcasting. Nevertheless, we're breaking it all down for you right now. Uh, Just one more reminder before we get into these breakdowns, uh, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So if for some reason you only wanna hear about AEW or you only want to hear about NXT, hit the description, find the timestamp, and you can jump wherever you wanna go. But as always in this space, I do hope you listen to both shows, uh, both uh, brands, I should say, and everything across what they gave us on those three shows, Dynamite, Rampage, and of course, NXT. So this week, one more time, we are going to start with AEW. And as always, we break down Dynamite and Rampage together. We base it by storyline, not by show. So with that, let's start with the opening of Dynamite. John Moxley was in the ring saying there's three certainties in life, death, taxes, and him. Because no one can outwork him, the AEW ring belongs to him, and no one has the balls to say otherwise. Hangman Page answered that call with commentary clarifying he is not yet cleared to compete, except Hangman got into the ring, punched Mox, and then they brawled until quickly getting separated by officials two times. Mox tried attacking a third time and literally fell off a stage in what I thought was a hysterical moment. Uh, Hangman and Mox later fought backstage before being separated again. There was a security guard that had one of the worst dyed blonde mullets I've ever seen in my life. Maybe the worst of all time. Go back, look at that guy's hair. Uh, It was, look, it was a hot opening segment for sure. And it makes total sense for Mox Hangman to be a feud given Paige's concussion. Paige should be pissed off about that. I did think it was a little strange for Mox to go from last week wanting his title back and being super angry at MJF to this week not even mentioning his name and saying, I'm the toughest guy here. So who's left to step to me? You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't Mox have started by calling out MJF saying, you're not tough. You would never give me a rematch. In fact, there's no one in this company who is tough enough to fight me. And then Hangman Page comes out. Just really weird to completely overlook that. I thought it was a huge plot hole. Uh, Look, my presumption is that this match, Moxley and Page happens at Winter is Coming. Hangman perhaps even wins. Then Mox gets his vacation, but we also thought his vacation was gonna come immediately after full gear and it didn't. Renee Paquette obviously just recently joined AEW. Would it be weird for her to take a couple weeks off You know, so soon after joining and appearing on TV? Maybe, maybe their entire vacation got pushed. I don't know, but obviously there's a real life element to consider here. But again, Mox, Paige, the brawl was good. It was probably the most exciting thing that happened on Dynamite top to bottom. And... I do think that we're gonna get a really good match when it happens. Again, I presume that will be winter is coming. Let's move to the other big topic on Dynamite, which was MJF making his uh, return to the show, his first appearance since winning the AEW championship. So William Regal entered, he introduced MJF, despite Mox chasing Regal away last week. The reasoning for him being at the show is that Mox was presumably kicked out of the building. But 
Regal would have had to have been there anyway. And Mox already told him not to come back. So was he like hiding in an office, hoping Mox would get into a brawl with Hangman and get let out of the building. Therefore, he could show his face. All very convoluted. Anyway, fans chanted, shut the fuck up when MJF began speaking. So here we go again with the the cursed chants from the crowd. Uh, He called them uncouth like Regal did last week. And he explained that Regal emailed him supposedly after the firm attacked MJF a few weeks ago. The email said MJF had grown weak, but could be the greatest villain of all time with his help. And if he used brass knuckles instead of the dynamite diamond ring, as it's the only way to leave an imprint on Mox. MJF said he respected the firm for attacking him because he was weak and they exposed that. Then he said the look of the AEW title makes him want to gag because it's tacky and reminds him of all the other champions that were not at his level. So he dumped it out of the ring and Regal unveiled the exact same championship with a faint Burberry strap on like a brown leather background. Tony Schiavone tried to do like a Jim Ross yelling that MJF desecrated the title, but the thing looked 95% the same. It was literally just a different strap. MJF called out fake guys like Eddie Kingston, Ricky Starks, and Brian Danielson. He promised to be champion until the bidding war of 2024 so he could get the biggest contract in history. And he hoped the right con made that offer, not Tony, but Nick, and of course, Trips. Or he said he'd go to Hollywood. MJF then called out fans who cheered his title win, suggesting they will be fickle and call him a boring champion sooner than later. MJF said he will wrestle and defend the title rarely as a special attraction, and it will usually be on pay-per-view. He then said his reign would put those of Hulk Hogan and Bruno San Martino to shame. MJF then put over Regal with great respect before walking behind him and punching him in the back of the neck with the brass knucks he already had on his hand. Commentary also sold all the neck, back, and brain surgeries that Regal's had to that area over the last, you know, half dozen years or so. Uh, MJF then said Regal told him that he had a lot to learn, but Regal was the one who made a deal with the devil. Then Max recited Regal's old email that he read all those weeks ago. He changed the verbiage, obviously, for it to be from MJF. And then he stormed off. Danielson ran down to check on Regal and trainers put him in a neck brace and on a board before loading him into an ambulance. If that sounded like a lot, that's because it was. Now, MJF is normally what I would call effortless when he speaks. This felt the opposite. It felt try hard, if that makes sense. He was trying to get heat, trying to explain a storyline that became a bit convoluted, trying to get crowd energy that was wasted by him not showing up last week, a couple days after actually winning the championship. This felt like three or four segments crammed into one, probably because they should have done half of it last week and another half of it this week. And it went on far too long to actually capture and retain attention. I hate the fans. I changed the title. I'm almost never going to defend it. Everyone else sucks except for me. I even hate AEW and I'm going to go to WWE or Hollywood. Oh, and by the way, fuck William Regal. Like it was just way too much for one promo, especially given it wasn't some huge address immediately made last week where you're the new champion and I'm going to run through six different things and here they are. Like if he had done something like that, it might've worked, but here you are a full week removed from that and the excitement and intensity from that championship win is gone. And by the way, that showed up in AEW's ratings on Wednesday. On top of all of that, the crowd did make some noise, 
but it didn't like vociferously boo him like was necessary to make everything that uh, MJF was saying actually work. Up until the Regal attack, the rest of it fell completely flat to me. The Regal email was whatever. The title reveal, which we didn't even know was happening, was massively underwhelming with Shivani selling it way too hard. At the very least, they should have replaced AEW in the middle of the title with MJF. Like, why would you not at least do that? And then you have the bidding war of 2024 shit. It was tired six months ago. Three months ago, it was still okay to do it. Is this really going to continue for another 13 months when we all know he's either already re-signed with AEW or the only reason this is being allowed on screen is because Tony Khan has basically told him whatever offer you get from WWE, I'm going to match it. And MJF has probably said, okay, if you do, I'll stay. Like you could tell even the crowd was done with it because usually they would sing along with him. The bidding war of 2024. And then if he would mention Nick or Trips, they would cheer. They didn't. Even with him mentioning Nick Khan and Triple H, they didn't give him any reaction. I also thought it was interesting on top of all of that. He mentioned Hogan and Bruno. He had a great opportunity to tongue-in-cheek mention the current most dominant world champion in wrestling, Roman Reigns, and he didn't take that opportunity. Now, all of that said, okay, the Regal attack was tremendous, and it was totally unexpected. Regal selling was obviously exceptional. MJF's demeanor, his expressions, those were fantastic in that moment. But it also felt like something that should have happened in three months or four months, not 11 days after MJF won the title. And because of that, you do have to wonder about Regal's future. And you also have to wonder about MJF's future in a kayfabe standpoint in terms of AEW. We'll come back to the Regal stuff in a little bit. But MJF, right? He had friends in the firm. He turned on them. He had a guy helping him mastermind his title reign and he turned on him. He shit-talked Kingston and Danielson, Starks as well. The expectation is that MJF has a long title reign because after waiting this long to actually crown him, you're not going to take it off of him in 30 or 60 days. I mean, maybe they're doing a storyline where this guy is just so overinflated from an ego standpoint. He flies way too close to the sun, the wings melt, and he quickly loses the title. But if they're not doing that, MJF has no faction, he has no heavy, and he doesn't have a guy like Regal. So how the hell is he actually going to survive on his own when everyone else in the entire company, heels and babyfaces, all hate him? Maybe there's a reveal next week of a new faction or a new heavy that gets his back. He somehow convinces Wardlow to re-sign with him. I mean, you know, I don't know what they could actually do. But the point is, right now, they're in a very precarious situation with MJF. And it is fair to say that his first appearance as champion was not as well received as it should have been. This should have been a crowning moment for him and AEW. The second, I mean, I guess Hangman Page technically isn't a pillar, but the second quote unquote homegrown talent to win their championship. And yet, outside of the regal attack, which again felt rushed, this really did fall flat. Now, when it comes to Regal, we mentioned this on last week's show, given the heated confrontation with Mox, 
we said, hey, you know what? Maybe that's a way to actually write Regal out of AEW. That way he can return to WWE because Triple H, Paul Levesque, is obviously in power. He sees him as his potential top lieutenant behind the scenes. And obviously they are extremely close, not to mention Regal's son, Charlie Dempsey, is literally competing right now in NXT. And I thought if we didn't see Regal this week, then that would make even more sense. And yet Regal shows up. And when he showed up, my mind was completely twisted. I was like, well, guess that presumption was wrong. And you know, that's fine. Regal's with AEW and he's been doing great there. So he's going to continue doing great. And then MJF attacked him and physically laid him out beyond the psychological um, excommunication, right? That Mox we thought did last week. And now you have this guy who has neck, brain, and back problems being hit with brass knucks in that area. You cannot expect him to come back anytime soon. I mean, you don't do an attack like that unless the guy is either completely leaving the territory or he needs to be gone for a minimum of three months. Now, that said, Regal historically does go back to the United Kingdom for the holiday season, and it is the holiday season. So it is certainly a possibility that they wrote him off for that. However, multiple reports have come out with really different information regarding Regal's AEW contract. Initially, there was a report that the contract was potentially ending as soon as December or January. Then Dave Meltzer came over the top, and I think he was actually the one who initially reported that. He came over the top and said, actually, since saying that, I've learned Regal is signed to AEW for three years. And then coming out of Dynamite on Wednesday, there is new reporting from PW Insider that it appears possible that Regal will actually be on his way back to WWE with his current contract with AEW making that possible because his deal is apparently up in December or January. And then further reporting seems to indicate that perhaps it was a short-term year one deal with options for years two and three. And very similar to the Cody Rhodes situation, Tony Khan may have been faced with a situation where he and Regal spoke and Regal's like, I'd really like to leave and here's all the reasons why. And Tony, whether it's out of respect for Regal, who's obviously a veteran in the industry that everyone respects in terms of his mind and all that type of stuff. Either Tony said, you know what? I have so much respect for you that, okay, I won't pick up your option and you can go ahead. Or perhaps it was Regal's option or just something else went down where maybe Tony thought, hey, you know what? This is a really good opportunity to write him out. We're breaking up uh, BCC anyway. So let's go ahead and just cut bait and go from there. Why keep someone with our organization when they don't want to be here. This, of course, is something that WWE faced for years upon years when it didn't have competition, and it faced very early when AEW started. They, of course, didn't release people for that reason when they requested releases. They became very frustrated. Uh, dissension grew within the locker room, and that was a problem. And you know, Tony Khan reportedly has been denying release requests to this point for people who would clearly go back to WWE. And we don't know whether these are accurate or whether they're not, but apparently Malachi Black and Andrade Alitalo are perhaps two of those people who have either made the request or were at least 
inquiring with Tony about whether he would consider letting them out of their contracts. And Tony said no. So, you know, when, whenever it comes to wrestling news reporting and behind the scenes stuff, you can only kind of discuss what's out there unless you can report something yourself. And in all of these cases, I have nothing that I can specifically report on any of it. But when it comes to Regal and potentially going from AEW to WWE, it just makes all the sense in the world, particularly because in WWE, it's not like he's going to show up and be the SmackDown general manager. If he does return, he's going to be in a backstage role. And it's very possible that they came to some type of gentleman's agreement, or perhaps Regal just said to him, you know, hey, you know what? Grant me my release. You can even sign it to an, into the contract that I can't appear on television for three, six, nine months, a year, whatever the case might be. You know, if he does come back, I, I would expect he would either take a leadership role in NXT and the Performance Center alongside Shawn Michaels, or he might take another leadership role in WWE alongside Paul Levesque overseeing both the main roster and NXT. So there's just so many different things, of course, that Regal can do from talent development to creative. It's really endless. That's how talented he is as an individual. So, you know, it's one thing to write someone off one week, but to write someone off two weeks in a row where you're basically saying, well, he has no one that he can really come back to in the BCC with the exception of maybe Brian Danielson as an individual. And he certainly can't come back to MJF. So now he really has no, no reason whatsoever to come back to the territory. When you go and do something like that, it's most likely for more than a couple month you know, vacation or seeing your family over in the United Kingdom. It's probably because you're being written out of the territory. So that is my expectation in terms of what's happening with William Regal. I think there's a lot of people getting themselves into a twist. Why would he sign a nine-month contract or a seven-month? Or why would he have this option? Contracts are different. Everyone signs in a different way. If Tony Khan really wanted Regal, I'm sure he went to him and said, these are my terms, meet them, or I just won't sign. And I'm sure that when Tony Khan offered him a deal, he probably called Paul Levesque and said, hey, this is what I'm being offered. Is there any chance that you guys are going to bring me back? And perhaps Paul said, hey, you know what? There's some shit going down. Why don't you get yourself an out? And if the opportunity presents itself, we'll bring you back and then you could utilize that. So there's just so many different things that could happen. People getting themselves worked up, not understanding, calling one reporter fake, another uh, another one, uh, you know, supporting one reporter over the other. Many of these things can be true simultaneously. It's very difficult to know what exactly is going on behind the scenes without Regal just straight up saying as much. And hopefully at some point when a decision's made or when he does, you know, lay somewhere, when he, when he eventually uh, falls somewhere, we'll get a more definitive answer on what exactly happened. Let's go away from Regal and all that situation, get back to AEW Dynamite and Rampage. So next week is going to be a Dynamite Diamond Ring Battle Royal. The winner faces MJF for the ring, but apparently not the AEW title. Starks decided to enter the match because he wants everything MJF owns. I initially thought this was going to be a way to get like a good match out of MJF that so he could win and not have it be necessarily a title defense and that he could also obviously retain the ring while Starks maybe remains number one contender for winter is coming. But now with Starks in the match, he either gets eliminated unnecessarily or he doubles up on winning the eliminator and gets a battle royal win for no reason whatsoever because they're not going to give him the championship and the ring. So like, why even do it in the first place? He probably could have just challenged for the ring as well, 
giving the same reasoning. I don't just want the title. I want everything you have, including that ring. I guess we'll need to see the booking before we criticize or praise it. So Starks fought Ari Davari before the match. The firm came out with Matt Hardy jumping in front and Stokely Hathaway telling him to get in the back because the segment was not about him. It was about Ethan Page. Page said he would win the battle royal, take the ring from MJF after Starks lost to him at Winter is Coming. Davari attacked Starks at the bell. He immediately ate Rochambeau with Starks winning in 30 seconds. That, that was it. I don't have any analysis there. Uh, on Dynamite, we had Death Triangle, which has two wins against the Elite, zero wins in the third match in their best of seven series. This started with an attack on the stage and some choreographed spots like a double rolling cutter. During commercial, there were a ton of big dives outside. The bell rang back from commercial, but no one was in the ring. So they rang the bell with everyone outside. Matt Jackson took out Rick Knox with a dropkick through the ropes. Ray Phoenix stole a bell hammer from Pentagon, who pushed him and stole it back with Phoenix eating a V-trigger from Omega. The hammer never came into play the rest of the match. Penta then ate stereo super kicks and Omega's signatures with Omega kicking out at 2.9 after taking a fear factor. When I say there was almost zero tagging, I mean, there were no rules in this match. It was just a tornado match. It was crazy. Uh, They just chose basically to go full spot fest. Pac dropped Omega with a great avalanche Falcon Arrow. Nick countered a Casadora into a cutter and bang for your buck. Next was fear factor on Matt with a Tope Suicida by Phoenix an Escalera splash by Penta wiping out everyone else. I think Pac may have botched like a top rope move, but we didn't get to see it. The camera work was terrible throughout this. Uh, He also had the worst face mask ever, like face mask ever that I've seen a wrestler wear for like athletics. Just, it was moving all over the place. It didn't fit his face. It was horrible. Uh, Matt then got knees up on a black arrow. He folded Pac over and got the win. Omega cut a promo saying it wouldn't be a sweep but it was only 2-0 and you need four wins. So even if they won the third, it wouldn't have been a sweep. So that didn't really make sense. Anyway, last week we suggested we might be wrong about the best of seven series because the second match was nearly as much of a banger as the first. This one for me allowed me to completely revert back to my opinion. There's no doubting the work rate, the ability, the spots, the entertainment, all of that. This thing was a blast to watch other than the cameras missing half the spots but there was no storyline other than the very brief hammer spot, no psychology, almost no tagging, almost no selling. It was just spot after spot after spot. I'm not even sure how to grade it. Like four stars, A minus, just because the work was so good. But that continues the declining quality of these matches. Each one so far has been worse than the one that preceded it. The one smart move I thought was putting this as the main event because those have struggled with ratings recently except the ratings came out right before we taped this episode and they got, they tied for their worst demo for a Wednesday episode since like the first week of 2021. So it was a poor rating for the show and apparently this did not help. On Rampage, JAS came out with Chris Jericho putting himself over and saying not even Claudio Castanoli can slow him down. Claudio said he knows he can beat him because he must beat him. Jericho declined because there's nothing in it for him to give a rematch. Matt Menard suggested Claudio be a sports entertainer again if he loses joining JAS, Claudio accepted. Man, this dragged. (laughs) Like, this segment was boring as sin. Claudio, he'd been relatively protected as a promo since joining AEW, but he was massively exposed here. Also, they literally just ran this angle with Matt Hardy and the firm. But, like, they just did this concept. It was really painful. On Dynamite, JAS and BCC members were not in Indianapolis. Instead, they were in Nashville. Jericho wasn't even with them. And they were being interviewed in like an empty room by Renee. 
but again, Dynamite was in Indianapolis. We never found out why they were in Nashville. Jake Hager said he wanted Claudio to wear the purple hat and tag with him again. Claudio got mad and stormed off. Daniel Garcia said he made the right decision to stay with JAS. And then he challenged Claudio and Wheeler Yuta to a tag team match. Then Yuta wanted the the pure title and he wanted that title match at final battle. The whole thing was convoluted. I thought it might be like they were there for final battle press, but that show was in Texas. So why were they in Nashville? Uh, This was an awful segment. 0 for 2 for the JAS BCC stuff this week. This is also the third pure title match between Garcia and Yuta since July. And Garcia's only other defenses of the belt have been on dark. So what are we doing here? On Rampage, Tony Storm was interviewed backstage by Renee. She was in a hoodie without makeup or her hair done. And she had two black eyes looking really depressed. Tony said she was actually proud of Jamie Hayter for winning, but she was disappointed that she had to do it with help from Britt Baker and Rebel. This was really well done. I just wish they explained a little bit more what she meant by breaking her face. Why did she have two black eyes? What's wrong? Why is she in this state? On Dynamite, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter were bothered that Soraya was getting a sit down with Renee while Hayter was not. So she demanded one with Tony Schiavone. Jamie got to speak here. So this kind of went against what I expected the storyline between them to be. But Hayter is right in that she doesn't get to speak. Except, you know, they were complaining about a lack of interview time during an interview. What if they had just done that interview with Tony and used their time to talk about the subjects they wanted to talk about? How much longer is a scheduled interview going to be? Like 30 more seconds? It's really silly when you think about that. On Rampage, there was a ROH Tag Team Championship match, FTR, against Top Flight. Dante Martin hurt his knee in the match, but he's believed to be okay. Dax Hardwood hit a slingshot Liger Bomb with Cash Wheeler splashing Dante for a near fall. Dax then ate a DDT with a splash in a similar type of spot from Top Flight. Darius caught Cash with a Spanish Fly. And ultimately, Dante missed the nosedive with FTR hitting the big rig for the win in title retention. After the bell, Gun Club came out eating some popcorn. And that's all that happened. Thought there was good work here, a really nice look for Top Flight. Later backstage, Dax challenged Brian Danielson to a match because Brian's a good wrestler. Seriously, that was his reasoning. You're a great wrestler and I want to fight you. So on Dynamite, we got Danielson against Harwood. Brian hit a tope suicida so strong, Dax flew over the barricade. Dax countered an avalanche backdrop into a falling crossbody. They had some great exchanges before Dax hit a slingshot Liger bomb turned into a sharpshooter. Then they did the inside cradle reversal sequence with Danielson transitioning into a label lock for the submission win. Brian clapped at Dax after the bell, offered him a hand. Dax feigned like he was going to slap it away, but instead they shook hands and hugged. It was really good work here. Just no story whatsoever. Four stars and an A-. On Dynamite, the acclaimed were backstage answering questions like soldiers with Billy Gunn being the drill sergeant. They said they would fight the second best tag team in AEW on Rampage, except obviously they think they're the best tag team and they're not going to be fighting FTR. So who exactly are they fighting? And they're also not fighting the Young Bucks or the Lucha Brothers. So who would that be? Uh, The only thing announced though for Rampage was a talking segment. So they announced a match and then gave a graphic for a talking segment. This was one of a number of segments that was just terribly conceptualized and kind of executed even worse. On Dynamite, we had a TNT Championship match, Samoa Joe against AR Fox. This was an open challenge pre-announced before the show. I know technically an open challenge can be answered before the show, but what's the point of calling it an open challenge if you're not going to have the person be a surprise? Also, Fox was recently signed by AEW, as we mentioned previously. Congrats to him. 
Joe ate a 450, but hit the muscle buster to retain the title. It was a really good short match. Joe called himself the king of television after the bell, and Wardlow appeared on the screen cutting a really corny promo saying he was coming after the titles. Don't get me wrong, I'm 100% in for Joe versus Wardlow, just as I was for the triple threat with Powerhouse Hobbs. But this storyline is just absolute shit. Like, why wasn't there an attempted attack or something more aggressive from Wardlow coming out on the ramp, making Joe run away, anything? The whole thing was corny. On Rampage, Dark Order fought Roosh, Butcher, and Blade. John Silver and Alex Reynolds were by themselves without 10. That made it a three-on-two handicap match. Roosh was beating Silver without going for a fall when Evil Uno and Negative One came out on the ramp and yelled for 10. He ran out into the ring, stared down Roosh, but instead clotheslined Silver in a heel turn. Roosh then hit Bull's Horns for the win. Uno was thrown into the steel steps. 10 then hit a discus lariat on Reynolds and then Uno before ripping Uno's mask, flicking off the crowd, and doing a double choke slam of Reynolds through a table outside. Then he became Preston Vance by taking off his mask and throwing it at negative one's feet. I thought the turn was well done. Anytime you're gonna do a turn like that and utilize a child, you know, and obviously with him being Brody Lee's son, it certainly makes sense in the Dark Order kind of universe, but I'm not exactly excited about Vance going from low card faction to lower mid card faction. Dark Order imploding has been long overdue, but did I have any interest going into this or coming out of it? No, I just, I really didn't. On Dynamite, Willow Nightingale fought Anna JAS. Commentary was excited that Willow smiles and is a happy person. Anna hit a flying neckbreaker and way later a gory bomb. Fans actually chanted for Willow, who countered Queenslayer by falling backwards. Ty Mello distracted, but Willow hit the lariat and the doctor bomb for the win. This may have been the best reaction that an AEW crowd has given a women's match that did not feature main eventers. Like the Indianapolis crowd was largely shit on Wednesday night, but they stood out in this segment and Willow in particular is super over as a babyface. Credit to not just her, but Anna as well for a really fun match that was extremely well received. Anna then crawled out of the ring after the bell when Ruby Soho's music hit. She appeared making her return in the ring behind Ty and easily took her out before hitting Destination on Unknown on her on the ramp to end the segment. This was another extremely strong consecutive women's segment. Great to see Ruby back. The entire sequence worked. And obviously her going after Ty makes all the sense in the world. Now, following this, they did three straight women's segments and credit to AEW for actually doing that. It was only one match, but they did do three straight women's segments. Jade Cargill came out for a celebration with the remaining baddies, but she was angry that they were hanging out with Red Velvet over the weekend after she was excommunicated last week. She said she's AEW's brightest star and everyone is eating off her. And she definitely looked the part saying that she was basically wearing a white money bikini in the ring. Then she mentioned Bow Wow, who just so happened to appear on screen saying he will see her soon. And even though Jade absolutely looked like a star in this segment, let me tell you, this was fucking horrendous. And it was also jammed given no time after the ones we we just spoke about. So it's like, they're like, hey, we should give the crowd three women's segments, but let's jam them all into a really, really tight window where this one just is awful. Um, nothing happened. There's nothing actionable in the ring. No one gives a shit about Bow Wow, nor should they in 2022. 
the only thing that could possibly make this meaningful is if it's leading up somehow to a Sasha Banks debut. I mean, you have Bow Wow, obviously a rapper. Obviously, when Lil Bow Wow came up, it was through like Jermaine Dupri, but Snoop Dogg really was the person who initially discovered him in like the late 1990s. So there is that connection where he's, he could kind of, you know, cut a promo. Hey, I reached out, made some family connections, and I got someone to challenge you for your title. But I got to tell you, if AEW is using Bow Wow as a way to bring Sasha Banks into the company, I mean, it would obviously look Sasha Banks debuting at any point will get a massive pop if that was to happen. But using Bow Wow for that would be like as lackluster of a piece of booking as you could possibly do to bring in Sasha Banks. Also having Sasha like come after Jade as opposed to the AEW Women's Championship, the main title. That's a big question as well. Look, I don't think Sasha Banks is going to AEW. I'm just saying that's the only way that this is not terrible. That that's the only way I'm like trying to like explain it. Uh, despite how much I dislike this, I will admit what I said a minute ago. What Jade said was true. She looked like an absolute star standing there, like in the middle of the ring. The problem is, and this is no offense, she's mediocre to rough, both on the mic and in the ring. So just the ceiling of her as a star doing something outside of AEW, high. In AEW, not high at all. Let me put it that way. On Rampage, Athena ranted backstage about being in a company owned by a billionaire, but not being on TV. She was angry that she was docked a week's pay and suspended for striking Aubrey Edwards, which we literally didn't know until she said it. You would think that would be a bigger deal. Then she challenged Mercedes Martinez for the ROH women's title. I really do like Athena's new edge, but this was really convoluted. And it just seems like a really quick short storyline to create a match for final battle. I wouldn't be surprised if Athena beats Martinez. Then again, they never stripped Martinez of the title despite her being injured and out of action for all this time. So like, if you're not gonna strip her of the title, then why wouldn't you just have her retain it? We'll get to that maybe next week. On Rampage, Akaru Shida fought Queen Aminata. Uh, Penelope Ford and the bunny came down to watch. Commentary put over Aminata, but Shida won with a katana in like a squash. This was the only women's match on the entire show. Absolute total joke. On Rampage, Darby Allen fought Anthony Henry. This was Asher Hale, who was briefly in NXT. I guess he's been working AEW Dark. JD Drake, who we haven't seen on TV in forever, He's apparently aligned with him. He attacked Darby outside, so Sting came down and took him out. Darby hit Scorpion Death Drop and the Coffin Drop for the win. Jim Ross called it an outstanding matchup. It was, I mean, maybe mediocre with no storyline before or after. This is how Darby Allen is being utilized. This is how Sting is being utilized. On Rampage, Powerhouse Hobbs got a short vignette driving through, I presume, his hood in California. And I only use that word because that's what the uh, scenery kind of you know, makes you think of. It didn't accomplish anything in terms of character development, but it did look really cool. He got another similar vignette on Dynamite where he walked by some guys playing dice and then walked into a barbershop. And really, that's the extent of what we got so far with Powerhouse Hobbs, but it seems like they're doing a series of vignettes and telling us to come back next week for more. So I am interested kind of to see what they do with him, maybe show a little bit of his personality besides what we've already seen with Team Taz, him getting the nickname, all that type of stuff. So yeah, as I said, just a really rough week in AEW coming out of what I thought was an exceptionally strong week last week. And that's with MJF not being on the show when he should have been last week. So with that, let's go ahead, move over to NXT. And similarly, I just, 
Last week's NXT was a tremendous show. The two hours flew by, as I said. This week, it completely dragged lower quality matches for the most part, less interesting segments. It just felt like a filler episode from start to finish, which makes sense because it kind of was a filler episode. The go-home for NXT deadline is next week. So Shawn Michaels gathered a Hall of Fame panel to determine the Iron Survivor Challenger participants. It was Road Dogg, X-Pac, uh, Alundra Blaze, and Molly Holly. HBK said he wanted to find the five best wrestlers in 2022, but he didn't want to make that determination only on win-loss records or analytics. So they started with the men. Dog made the obvious Carmelo Hayes call. Alundra suggested Tony D'Angelo, but they decided injury would hinder him. X-Pac went, X-Pac, X-Pac uh, went to bat for JD McDonough. Molly brought up Joe Gacy for beating Cameron Grimes. Dog wanted Von Wagner, but Blaze said he hadn't been winning recently. X-Pac suggested Axiom, though he has not been cleared, and then appropriately Grayson Waller. So they basically discussed seven people, two of which were injured, though both of those guys either wrestled or said they were returning on NXT this week. Plus, why would you not discuss like Andre Chase, Nathan Frazier, Aro Mensa, Dijak? I mean, there's plenty of other people. It just felt like a really thin field. Later, they spoke about the women. Blaze went for Roxanne Perez and they put her over really strong. Dog called for Zoe Stark and X-Pac actually was surprised Triple H had not already called her up, which I thought was pretty cool that they mentioned that. Molly brought up Indy Hartwell as a similarly ready talent, but Dog and Blaze both said she may not have it all together yet. X-Pac called out Cora Jade. Dog brought up Fallon Henley. So X-Pac mentioned Kiana James. Molly pointed out Alba Fire is an obvious one, but Dog said that she seems to be focused on Isla Dawn. So they brought up eight overall women here, but they also missed some obvious names. Like how about Ivy Nile, who wins a shit ton? Wendy Chu, Tiffany Stratton. Granted, she hasn't been around. Nikita Lyons, obviously they're pushing really hard. Where are all those names? Now look, I'm critiquing the overlooked names, but these segments were actually great. They were like half kayfabe, but there were also plenty of conversations based in reality about positives and negatives of the superstars, both in terms of like real life, like why haven't they been called up yet, injury preventing them from participating, all that, but also real life conversations about their kayfabe storylines, which I just thought was really cool. It felt like a real conversation rather than something just put together as a TV segment, even though obviously it was put together as a TV segment. Now the men's match will include Mello, JD, Waller, and Gacy, with a fifth combatant determined via wildcard. That match will be Chase, Wagner, and Axiom. The women's match will include Stark, Jade, Roxanne, and Kiana, with the fifth also coming from a wildcard triple threat involving Wendy Chu, Henley, and Hartwell. Both really strong fields. And really, the only two I would not have out of the eight that have already been announced that I would not have winning out of the eight that's already been announced are Gacy and Kiana, especially if Braun Breaker retains the NXT title as expected. But of the eight names announced, only one of them across the men's and women's matches is a babyface. Like, how did they not consider that when putting it all together? Even if you consider Mello a tweener, that's just ridiculous. Roxy, as the lone babyface in the women's match, seems to make it obvious that she's gonna win it. She wins the challenge, she beats Mandy Rose to stand and deliver. I've already talked numerous times about why she shouldn't be the one to beat Mandy Rose. It really seems like that's the direction they're going. The men's match is less obvious. Maybe Mello, if Breaker retains, so he can win the title at Stand and Deliver as a heel over Braun. 
The only person in the wildcard matches who would stand a chance of actually winning the entire thing would be Hartwell if she even advances. I just gotta say, with all the talent and all the really interesting options available on the roster, many of the choices here were disappointing. But, you know, maybe they have reasons for it that I'm not aware of. Apollo Crews was writing in his journal at the diner when Braun Breaker entered and sat across from him. Breaker noted that Crews had his eyes focused on someone else, but now that he's been in NXT for a bit, he wants the title more than ever, he being Cruz. Uh, Braun talked about Cruz's challenge, forcing him to hit the gym earlier and earlier. Cruz talked about him staying in the gym later and later, and also that there was pressure getting to Braun, and Cruz is the only guy who can actually beat him. Braun then said it would be the first time one of Apollo's visions doesn't come true. This started really corny. It actually wound up as a kind of solid segment. Both are staying babyface going into deadline, and there was a solid mix of like respect, intensity, and just challenge going both ways here. I am interested to see how they build this on the go home uh, next week. I'm more excited for this match than I thought I was going to be. And Cruz is like Braun's best opponent, maybe since like Dolph Ziggler, in terms of like actually someone who might take the championship off of him. Uh, Toxic Attraction had a scheduled match against Caden Carter, Katana Chance, and Nikita Lyons. As Lyons was making her entrance after the KC's, Zoe Stark took out her right leg and then beat the shit out of her, forcing the KC's to support Lyons to the back. Toxic mocked them from a side stage. Lyons later said she was fine and said nothing would stop them while getting her knee checked. This match ended up restarting as the main event and Lyons got a late hot tag. Carter got thrown into the steps. Chance jumped off them to crossbody Gigi Dolan, only to eat kissed by a rose from Mandy. Lyons' knee gave out when she tried a roundhouse kick with Mandy on the apron. Lyons then moved out of position when Toxic hit high-low to end the match. Stark stared down from the crow's nest, making fun of Lyons, and the show ended. I I cannot believe Toxic has been a team for this long, and they're still using the most basic finisher that like a dozen teams in WWE use, and by the way, plenty of teams elsewhere as well. If I had the book, no tag team would use a variation of high-low as their finisher. It's a huge pet peeve of mine. Anyway, the match was okay. The finish was obvious from the moment Lions got attacked on the ramp. I'm not really sure the point of the match unless they're actually running back Toxic as the tag title challengers again. And if they do, like that is just mind-numbing. You have some other women's tag teams, develop them, make a number one contender. Toxic should be getting beaten for number one contenderships. They shouldn't be challenging for the titles again. Roxanne Perez fought Indy Hartwell. This opened the show. Indy slapped away a handshake attempt at the bell. Perez got frustrated at one point and delivered some really stiff shots, plus a corkscrew uppercut. Indy rolled through a flying crossbody. Roxanne countered that with an inside cradle. Hartwell booted her, but Perez caught her with two kicks and pop rocks for the win in eight minutes. I was a bit surprised this was so decisive, given the storyline they had been telling to this point. Later backstage, Electra Lopez said she targeted Indy upon her return because it was the highest impact with the lowest risk given Hartwell fails to live up to fans' expectations, but still remains one of their favorites. Lopez said she was ready to build an empire of her own. This was a really decent promo overall from her, and the concept of attacking Indy makes sense. It was also really insulting to her in kayfabe. There's definitely a concerted effort, or I should say there was a concerted effort on this show, to explain that Hartwell is not living up to her potential. So it's clear that somehow a storyline for her coming soon, and perhaps she goes on a you know, really winning streak and either moves up to the main roster or wins the title. There's a number of different options there. Duke Hudson told Andre Chase he understands that he let down their team and the university for booting him in the face last week, 
but he just couldn't control it once the person moved out of the way. Hudson said he got a ton of signatures from the student body to get Chase in the Iron Survivor Challenge. Chase was against that. Grayson Waller stepped up to talk shit to both of them. Thea Hale lost her shit when he did that, and Hudson decided to fight Waller. So he had Hudson against Waller later in the show. Hudson fought from under, but hulked up and went on a run when he nearly booted Hale in the face outside. He breathed a sigh of relief that he was able to stop himself, and he said, I can stop the boot when I need to, which flew directly in the face of what he told Chase earlier in the show. He eventually ate a rolling cutter from Waller back inside and lost in six minutes. Waller talked shit after the bell and celebrated in front of the student section while telling Chase he was right about Hudson, like right to be curious about him. A really smart way to like sow further doubts in Hudson's intentions while getting Waller a win. This continues to be entertaining. It was actually one of the best things on the show. Dijak had his return match against Dante Chen. He took a couple shots, but hit a sit-down choke slam. Chen got a few more shots in, but he had a huge boot before Dijak choked him out with this really weird single arm move. And then he hit feast your eyes for the win in four minutes. After the bell, Dijak said, that's an example of hard justice and he's not back in NXT to reinvent or rediscover himself. He just wants to destroy people. Folks, this just ain't it. First of all, the hard justice thing sounds like, let's call it a title of a pornography more than anything else. Uh, The look is off. The promo is terrible. This is something straight out of 1994. The in-ring was mediocre on top of that. Feast Your Eyes doesn't fit him anymore as a finisher. The choke was odd looking. Really, the sit-down choke slam should be the finisher that he uses now. And call it hard justice if you want. Pretty good move. I said last week that this was at least the best of his three WWE gimmicks. I'm not even sure that's true anymore. I'm honestly just shocked that he redebuted with this far still to go in figuring out the character. The only thing that Dijak has over T-Bar right now is the name, especially once T-Bar lost the mask. Later, Stax caught Dijak in the parking lot so Tony D'Angelo could thank him for softening up Wes Lee two weeks ago, obviously. Dijak said he wasn't doing him any favors. D'Angelo said he's always had a good relationship with authority. And since he's back in the ring next week, Tony is he would make sure the title came off Wesley soon. Dijak didn't show any of his cards. This was interesting as an interaction, but we'll see what actually comes of it. JD McDonough was in the Diamond Mine Dojo telling Ivy Nile that she was right. The Creed brothers have their hands full with Indu share. The Creeds came up saying he's full of shit. JD said he's not a skeptic. He's just speaking facts. So the Creeds kicked him out and he smiled at Ivy on his way out. That eventually led to Julius Creed against McDonough. Julius tossed JD a bunch and hit his delayed one knee vertical suplex. JD hit a perfect springboard moonsault outside. He then grabbed a chair and was going to swing on Julius when Sangha pushed Julius aside and took the shot. The referee called the DQ for Sangha pushing Julius. Indusher stared down JD. Then Veer Mahan yelled at the Creed brothers that they want them at 100% for their match. It was a unique bit of booking. Like we could see Julius show out. Neither guy took a real loss. And Indusher basically proved they're more tweeners than heels because they really want to fight these guys at 100%. The match is definitely being built up to be a big deal, but it's just not based on much. So I kind of want a little bit more from this next week. Alba Fire caught a taped promo behind some fire, as always, saying the spirits that told Isla Dawn to attack her must be against her. Alba then basically threatened her because Dawn kept her from keeping the promise that she made to win the NXT Women's Championship. This was fine, nothing special. Uh, Pretty Deadly said they will tell their own Christmas story next week. Here's a Christmas story I would like. Finding some number one contenders for the champions given none exist right now. 
That's a Christmas story I would like to hear. Mackenzie Mitchell was not pleased to be interviewing Javier Bernal, who convinced her to put their past behind them. Bernal then started hawking awful merchandise that led Mackenzie to run away when his cologne that he sprayed smelled up the area. Axiom stepped up because Bernal had basically been mentioning his name over the last couple of weeks wanting to fight. He said he's cleared and he's ready to fight Bernal, who was shocked and surprised at that information. So he ended up getting Axiom against Bernal. Vic Joseph was on one during this match. He mentioned Mantar, Techno Team 2000. That popped me huge. Bernal hit a Liger Bomb. Axiom reversed a figure four leg lock. He sold his injured knee all match. Axiom added a great flying clothesline, but he missed golden ratio with Bernal nailing a spike DDT. Axiom then hit a double underhook superplex followed by the golden ratio, which is like a Claymore style super kick. Really cool move. And he got the win. Malik Blade was broken up about his torn sweater vest when Idris Sanofe and Odyssey Jones got his back. Blade said he was angry because it was actually his dad's vest. And the guys told him to turn that anger into aggression. Blade agreed, but he told the guys he didn't want any backup for his match. So we got Blade against Von Wagner, who obviously tore up the vest last week. Blade ate Wagner's really shitty finisher after being caught with double knees on a frog splash attempt. Wagner went to attack when Anofe and then Jones saved him. I assumed the purpose of this was to give Wagner a win ahead of the Iron Survivor Challenge, but even though he was not announced for the event, he's in that triple threat next week. So I could definitely see him winning it. Then again, Axiom's also in that triple threat and he won as well. So it'll be curious to see who they choose. Uh, Fallon Henley fought Kiana James. Kiana was getting beat, so she brought her bag in the ring. She threw it at Fallon, who caught it in a distraction, only to get taken out with a couple moves in the 401k finisher in 10 minutes. Not a good match, not a good finish. I do like the finisher and the name of it, but that's the only thing I have that's nice to say about this one. There was also a vignette for Lyra Valkyra, I think is how they're saying her name, who's Aofi Valkyrie from NXT UK. She ran into the woods and was wearing like feathers and stuff. It was really weird. She's super talented in the ring. So I assume we're gonna see her in NXT UK soon, maybe at deadline, maybe um, the NXT episode after deadline. So that'll be cool that, to get her on the NXT roster in the United States. And really that's it this week across uh, AEW and NXT. We obviously had a ton to talk about on today's show. Next week, we will do an NXT deadline ultimate preview. Now, whether that is a separate episode or part of the weekly AEW episode, that remains to be determined. It's gonna be based probably on my schedule and how much time I have. As of right now, I would expect that ultimate preview to come out on Thursday, but there is certainly a chance we could run it on Wednesday. The best way for you to find out is to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast, where we not only drop episodes, but we also tell you about our weekly schedule so you can plan your uh, ear hole pleasure and listening habits around your friends here at getting over. Of course, we do more than drop episodes in our schedule. We tweet news and analysis, fun stuff all week long. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. One more reminder, of course, don't forget that the getting over wrestling podcast is so head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little time. Leave us a five-star written review as well. Tell people why you love the show and tell them why they should subscribe. We would greatly appreciate it. The five-star ratings, the reviews, they help us so much. One reminder before we get out of here, just on what we've already done this week, we have WWE Survivor Series Instant Analysis, another WWE Survivor Series Fallout episode talking about Raw and some remnants from SmackDown, and my one-on-one interview with none other than one half of WWE Women's Tag Team Champions, Dakota Kai. All of that is already in your feed from this week. 
four-episode week. We hope you enjoyed everything that we brought you getting over Will Return on Tuesday with our next WWE episode. So be sure to look out for that. So at this point, folks, it is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.